1: Hi, everyone. Welcome to the pod. Eight years ago this week, the Royal Navy was engaged in a massive struggle, one of the largest naval operations of the war to that point, against the German super battleship Bismarck that was unleashed on the North Atlantic, attempting to sever Britain's lifelines from the rest of the world. On the 24th of May, HMS Hood was destroyed. Regarded as the most powerful ship in the Royal Navy, Hood was blown up. Within six minutes of joining battle with Bismarck as one of the German shells penetrated her magazine and the mighty battleship was almost vaporised leading to the loss of over 1,400 lives with just three survivors who were plucked out of the icy North Atlantic a few hours later. This provoked consternation in Britain. Winston Churchill described the next few days as the worst few days of the war thus far. Tomorrow's anniversary, we've got a couple of podcasts this week. We've got Angus Constam on the pod today. It's a repeat of a podcast I made a few years ago. He wrote a wonderful book on Bismarck. So we're going to hear from him talking about the campaign, the battles. And we are also going to hear later in the week from some of the veterans. Interviews recorded before their deaths in which they talk about what it was like to fight both on the German and British sides. Very excitingly, we've also got our two-part series on HistoryHit.tv to mark the 80th anniversary. It's particularly special for me, if you'll forgive a little bit of emotion here. I joined the BBC when I was in my early 20s, hugely lucky to be asked to make a programme on the 60th anniversary of the Battle of El Alamein. I continued to make those big anniversary shows for over a decade, and I fell in love with the process. I thought they were important. They were enormously fulfilling and exciting for me, and I felt that they were national events of commemoration that I was very lucky to take part in. Those days came to an end, as things do. But with your help, with your support, I've been able to keep that going. That is literally why I started History Hit TV. And enough of you supported me and believed in what we were doing and became subscribers that we're able to produce top quality history programs now and broadcast them all over the world. So whilst this is an important national international anniversary Those terrible events in the North Atlantic. It's also a personal milestone for me because without your support, without you guys becoming subscribers, tens of thousands of you, we wouldn't have the money to make these shows. We wouldn't be lucky enough to make not just this program on Bismarck, but obviously Eleanor Yanniger's current chart-topping series about the medieval world, or our very own Tristan Hughes' wonderful show about the myth, the legend, the reality of that lost legion in Roman Britain. So. A huge thank you from me. I hope as you watch the Bismarck shows on HistoryHit.tv, you'll see that we are trying to get ever more ambitious, ever more worthy, really, of your subscription and your trust. Thanks also for putting up with my lisp, my dental lisp. I hope it's getting slightly better. Some of you have been kind enough to suggest I'm lisping because I've overindulged in Merlot before the recordings. And to that, my only reaction is, I wish. I wish it was that. Again, a huge thank you to everyone for supporting HistoryHit.tv. If you're not a subscriber, please head over and subscribe and watch all the wonderful history shows we've got on there. The Hunt for the Bismarck is out now on this 80th anniversary. In the meantime, everyone, here is Angus Constam. Enjoy, Angus. Thank you very much for coming on the podcast. Uh, a pleasure. Tell me, I mean, the Bismarck is one of the most famous and recognisable
2: names of the Second World War. Why do you you think that is? The Bismarck appeals because when it was launched, it was the biggest, most powerful battleship in the world. The days of battleships may have been over, but nobody really knew that in 1939 when she was launched, and not even in 1941 when she sailed on her maiden voyage. And the The thing was, I suppose, it was better than anything the British had at the time. And it had this reputation for being invincible. So the combination of that really caught the public imagination. But then the whole story of her her one operational voyage into the Atlantic is one that really ticks just about every box when it comes to drama, excitement, tragedy, and, and heroism. So it's an amazing story.
1: I can't wait to talk about it. Let's, let, let's briefly check in with this, the construction of this ship and it's, it's, uh, the intention behind it. For 400 years, shipbuilders have been placing cannons, guns on ships, turning them into floating gun platforms. So is the Bismarck the sort of ultimate embodiment of this philosophy of
2: waging war at sea? It really all started with the launch of Dreadnought at the start of the 20th century. And by the time of the First World War, you had this idea of the modern battleship, these Dreadnought warships where the emphasis was on the big gun. So the idea was rather than a Napoleonic sailing ship, where it was all about the number of guns and firing broadsides, these had their main armament of 12-inch 13-inch, up to 15-inch guns mounted in, in big gun turrets. So the idea is they could fire at a reasonable range, much larger than before, using quite sophisticated methods of fire control to make sure that all the shells landed on their target. And that target could be at the range of visibility. So we're speaking about where in the sailing ship days where you had a range of a few hundred yards, now we're speaking about something up to 15 miles.
1: So these ships can fire heavy projectiles 15 miles. And what was, what was the Bismarck's armament?
2: The Bismarck was, uh, she, she displaced about 49,000 tonnes. And the whole problem of any ship design was getting that trinity of armour, armament and machinery just right. It's a trade-off. But she was incredibly powerfully protected by a belt of armour between 10 and 12 inches thick running most of the way down her her ship's side. She wasn't protected at the very bow, at the very front and at the stern, at the back, but she was powerfully protected around her turrets, around the fire control equipment, the bridge, and, of course, this belt protecting her engines and her magazines. So that armour was proof, in theory, against any guns that the British Navy could fire at her. And what was she designed
1: to do? Was she supposed to be the the, the basis of a, of a new, mighty battle fleet of, of, of these enormous battleships, or was she supposed to operate by herself?
2: The Germans had a plan concocted by Admiral Raider called Plan Z, where they would try to build up a very powerful battle fleet that could, in theory, take on the British and beat them. The trouble is, Hitler invaded Poland in 1939, when this plan was still getting underway. So, they had a number of what the British called pocket battleships, which were really armoured cruisers. Ones like the Graf Spee, which uh, famously was sunk in action off Montevideo in uh, in 1939. And then they had the Scharnhorst class, too. the Scharnhorst and Nysnau, two, again, quite powerful ships, um, but quite weakly armed with just 11-inch guns, much smaller than contemporary British ships. But they were still well protected and fast, much faster, really, than any British battleship. So the ultimate then, by 1936, was the decision to make these even bigger and better battleships, two of them, Bismarck and Tirpitz. Work begun on both of them, uh, Bismarck in Hamburg and Tirpitz in Wilhelmshaven in the second half of 1936. So they had this powerful surface fleet. They didn't quite know how to use them. The idea was they didn't still didn't have the numbers to take on the British ship for ship. But if they could break through the British blockade, they could get out to sea, get out into the Atlantic or the South Atlantic or even the Indian Ocean and attack British or Allied convoys. This was really at a time before the U-boat war had really reached its peak. So the idea was that these surface ships could cause mayhem and disruption to the British convoys. It didn't really take a lot of ships to be sunk to um, to cause disruption, just the mere threat that a ship like Bismarck was at sea was enough to have the Admiralty diverting convoys and disrupting the whole vital flow of material from from Canada and from the United States to Britain. Was
1: there criticism at the time that these were these were weapons of the past because of developments of, of submarine torpedoes, of of armour-piercing bombs dropped by uh, aircraft, or were they or were they regarded as as kings of the of the maritime battlefield?
2: The battleship still had its place in maritime warfare. By the time Bismarck was commissioned in August 1940, she was certainly the most powerful battleship in service at the time. But while it could be argued that she was vulnerable to aircraft, the full potential of airstrikes hadn't really developed by then. Sure, the attack on Pearl Harbour was going to be at the end of 1941, in uh, November 1940, the British Fleet Air Arm attacked the Italian fleet at Taranto. But until these really demonstrated the power of naval aircraft, the battleship was still reigning supreme. Now, so tell me, when the ship is, is taken into
1: service in, in 1940, does it enter the fray immediately? What's, how are the decisions around um, how Bismarck should be used? How are they made?
2: The Germans had a tried and tested method of getting these ships operational. So when Bismarck was commissioned on the 24th of August, she put to sea, first of all, for sea trials. She went through the Kaiser Wilhelm Canal, we'd now call it the Kiel Canal. And once she got to Kiel, she then put out into the Baltic and began. The sea trials are there to to make sure the ship works right, to test the efficiency of her engines, and also to give the crew training in how the ship operated. Once that was done, she went back to have a few things fixed back in, in Hamburg. And then in early 1941, she put to sea again, back to the Baltic, this time really to train her crew. This is known, in, in the British Navy still do this, they call it working up. And it's to essentially make the crew work together as a team, so they know professionally, they know exactly what they're going to do, and that they can react to any circumstance or any threat that's thrown against their ship. So it's welding both the ship and her crew together into one big fighting unit.
1: And, and when does the when does the ship really complete that process and and, and start to be start to be used in a, in a warlike way?
2: In May nineteen forty one, this training process had really um, had really been completed. So the idea was plans were being developed to use Bismarck operationally. They had various plans in, in place. One was that she could team up with the Scharnhorst and the Neisenau and form a very powerful surface unit that breaks out into the Atlantic. Scharnhorst and Neisenau had done this very successfully in early 1941 in an operation called Operation Berlin, and they sank a significant number of Allied ships in the few weeks they were at sea. So the idea was they might be able to do this, but damage to these ships meant that Bismarck had to sail in concert with the heavy cruiser Prince Eugen. So by the middle of May 1941, these plans had been put in place, and the idea was to put to sea and start this, essentially, this raid and this breakout into the North Atlantic.
1: Well, in that case, tell me how that goes.
2: Bismarck slipped out of uh, Gotenhaven, now Gdynia, or Gdansk in what's now in Poland, um, in on the 18th of May. So that was the start of what the Germans called Operation Reinebung. Prince Eugen and Bismarck were escorted by destroyers through the Baltic, uh, and until on the morning of the 20th of May, they were passing through the Kattegat, the gap between Denmark and one side And Sweden on the other. Then they had the misfortune of being spotted by a Swedish warship and it immediately radioed to Stockholm with the news. That news was then passed on to the British naval attache in Stockholm who then passed it on to the Admiralty. This sighting report was backed up by another report from the Norwegian underground who radioed in a sighting report as the ship passed through the gap between Denmark and Norway. But after that, once she reached the North Sea, the British lost sight of her. And it wasn't until the lunchtime on the 21st of May that she was finally spotted at anchor near Bergen by a Spitfire flown by a flying officer, Suckling, who was part of the Photographic Reconnaissance Unit flying from Wick in the north of Scotland.
1: How, how much of a panic did Bismarck leaving the Baltic... Uh, generate in the Admiralty in London.
2: Bismarck breaking out into the North Sea was bad enough. The British had no real idea where she, she might go. They expected her to break out into the Atlantic, but she could just as easily base herself in Norway, where ships such as her sister ship Tirpitz were later hauled up behind a great belt of air defences and and uh, surface defences. So she would be a difficult ship to attack in there. But was she planning a breakout in the Atlantic? Nobody knew. If so, which route would she take? So the man on the spot was Admiral Tovey up in Scapa Flow. And he was on his flagship, King George V. He had a telephone line to the Admiralty and he was getting updates, but nobody was actually telling him where the ship was. Nobody had spotted her until on the 21st of May at 1.15 in the afternoon, she was finally seen by Flying Officer Suckling flying at an altitude of about 26,000 feet over a fjord south of Bergen and spotted Bismarck and the Prince Eugen and a tanker. So the British, once this film was developed, even that was a bit of a story because they, they had to get the film and the pilot down to London from the north of Scotland. So that took time. But once these photographs were developed, they knew where Bismarck was. The RAF even tried to bomb her that evening, but by then she'd left Bergen and headed back out to sea. So now the British knew roughly where she was, but no idea where she was exactly or what she planned to do. What was the plan? The plan was Admiral Luchin's, Intended to break out into the North Atlantic He had a number of options One was to go Through the gaps between Iceland and the Faroes Between Faroes and Shetland Or go round The other side of Iceland between Iceland And Greenland, an area known As the Denmark Strait Those were his three main options There was a fourth which went took him far too Close to Scapa Flow between Shetland And Orkney And uh, The British really had to cover all these bases, either by aircraft, and there was problems there with fog over some of these sea areas, but the main thing was they had a screen of cruisers, and the idea was these cruisers would act as a tripwire. Bismarck would come up, they would spot her and radio Admiral Tovey in his flagship, and he would try to coordinate the interception of Bismarck by heavy units of the British home fleet. He'd already decided to put some of these units to sea. His deputy, Vice-Admiral Holland, who flew his flag in the battlecruiser, cruiser Hood, put to sea from Scapa Flow, uh, accompanied by the brand new battleship Prince of Wales. They were sent to a position just south of Iceland so that they could intercept Bismarck if she went round either the gap between Faroes and Iceland or between Iceland and Greenland. So, although he didn't really have any firm evidence of of which way Lutyens was going, Admiral Tovey was already trying to cover his bases.
1: And he would end up, uh, the the Hood would end up meeting the Bismarck.
2: Indeed. That whole problem with Bismarck was that she had to break through um, the British cruiser blockade and she was spotted. Uh, She tried to sneak through... But on the evening of the 23rd of May, she entered the Denmark Strait, where she was sighted through pack ice and thick fog by one of these British cruisers, the heavy cruiser Suffolk. She and her sister ship, or near sister ship Norfolk, shadowed Bismarck. And they played cat and mouse in the fog and, uh, and through the snow squalls for most of that evening. But all the time, they were sending back radar reports and sighting reports to Admiral Tovey. So he knew what was happening. So he made sure that Vice Admiral Holland in Hood was in a position to intercept Bismarck at dawn when she emerged from the Denmark Strait.
1: Was the crew and the the captain, the admiral on Hood, were they confident of its ability to take
2: on Bismarck? The, The Hood was an old ship. She was the, had been the pride of the fleet since the since she first entered service around the end of the first world war but she was essentially a battle cruiser with all of its faults battle cruisers of course are ships where the emphasis is on speed and guns rather than armor so she was vulnerable uh, her armor was not the equivalent of a, a, her german counterpart However, the Prince of Wales, the brand new battleship, had problems too. Her 14-inch guns on these new, almost experimental, quadruple turrets were untested. They um, and her crew hadn't been in action before. In fact, she still had civilian contractors on board trying to get these guns and their mounts uh, and the ammunition supply to work properly. But that had problems in the battle to come. But the British, despite all that, were confident that they could take on the Bismarck and beat her. So you get the two sides approaching each other at dawn. The Germans had no real idea the British were there, but they expected trouble because they knew they were being shadowed by these cruisers. So on Saturday the twenty fourth of May, you can imagine the Germans peering through the as the as dawn breaks, and they start to see smoke on the southern horizon. That, that's the smoke coming from Hood and Prince of Wales. Finally, they see them at 5.37 in the morning at a range of about 17 miles, so they know they're in for a fight. They still don't know if these are British cruisers or they're actually major capital ships. The clock ticks down, the two sides approach each other, and then 5.52, the British open fire who was targeting Prince Eugen, thinking she was actually the battleship. And the Prince of Wales correctly identified Bismarck as the main ship, and they targeted her. And when these shells landed, Admiral Lutyens and the rest of the crew on Bismarck were instantly aware, because the shell splashes were about 200 feet high, that these weren't cruisers that were firing at them. These were big capital ships.
1: So at at this point... Uh, the British are feeling fairly confident. How, how are the German crew feeling? Is, has their plan gone awry? Did, did, were they seeking to, were they seeking a a a, a battle against British surface vessels? Were they hoping just to sort of to, to fall upon unarmed merchant con, uh, merchant
2: convoys, lightly armed? Admiral Lutens really wanted to avoid battle with the British, at least on equal terms. His whole priority and his orders concentrated on the sinking of British merchant ships he wanted to deal a blow to those vital transatlantic convoys but having to fight his way through now he'd got into that situation he was quite confident supremely confident really that his brand new battleship was going to be was going to be all right so the two sides started firing each other Uh, the germans opened fire a few minutes after the british uh, and the two sides started trading salvos bismarck was targeting hood but Hood was still accidentally pointing her guns at the German cruiser, the Prince Eugen. So this exchange of fire continued. Bismarck fired several salvos, and they were getting increasingly close to the British ship until they scored their first hit shortly before six o'clock. The Hood's gunnery wasn't as good, but Prince of Wales, of course, was still firing, and she scored the first of three hits on Bismarck. It didn't do much damage, at least it didn't seem to at the time. It hit her near the bow, and it went through one side of her her largely unprotected bow section and out the other side. All it seemed to do was cause flooding and made a fuel tank leak, but the importance of that would be discovered later. By now, Bismarck had achieved this perfect salvo, a perfect straddle in that its shells were falling all around Hood. So the gunnery officer calls for three salvos in rapid succession. The second of these, the, the sixth one fired by Bismarck, um, lands just as Hood is turning. And as it does, one of the shells plunges through the deck of Hood somewhere near her after turret behind the mainmast. There's a horrible pause for a few few seconds and there's a explosion. The explosion sets off probably, we don't know for sure, but it set off the charges in um, probably in one of the small secondary gun magazines. Right through the bulkhead of that was the main magazine for her 15-inch shells for one of her after turrets, for X-turret. That then ignited, and there was one almighty explosion. Observers, Captain Leach in the in the Prince of Wales was about a mile away, um, and astern of Hood when when this happened, and all of a sudden he just saw this glow and this huge column of smoke and flame shoot up from the back of Hood, and essentially what happened in those milliseconds was that Hood was torn in two; she exploded. Uh, It was ripped apart. The back third of the ship was broken off. Strangely, in the bridge, they felt a shudder and they had no real idea quite how stricken their own ship was until she suddenly started heeling over. And the helmsman said that there was no power in the steering so that he was turning the wheel and, of course, The rudders and propellers were sheared off. So one half the ship was going ahead, the other half was quietly sinking. So Hood went down very quickly. One of the survivors, one of the three survivors, a chap called Ted Ted Briggs, was on the bridge, and he looked back and saw the captain and the admiral still in their bridge as the ship was going down. So it was all over very, very quickly. In Bismarck, they saw this happen. There was a cheer uh, and they realized that they'd done that but seconds later they felt the shock wave and this is from about 12 miles away they still felt this this shock wave of of air pressure from the explosion and at that point they the cheering stopped and they just simply turned their guns on the prince of wales the remaining british battleship it was doing quite well at the time it was pounding away at bismarck as, as I said before, it scored three hits, none of them quite major ones, but she was very much putting up a better fight than Hood was. The trouble is now, Bismarck turned her guns on her and very quickly they began scoring hits. One of, I think, the third salvo fired by, by Hood at Prince of Wales struck her in the bridge. They called it the a compass platform in those days, an open bridge, and all the bridge crew, including the captain, were either injured or killed. Um, there's a marvellous scene in in the Sink the Bismarck film uh, with Kenneth Moore where blood is dripping down onto the navigator's desk from down below and that actually happened. The whole thing was uh, immediately, basically cut the head off the the command of the ship. It took 30, 40 seconds for, for the captain to resume command of, the, of of the ship, by which time he realised that his guns were starting to jam. His whole ship was starting to um, to be pounded by the German battleship, and he was losing the fight. So at that moment, he called the senior naval officer in the area, which was now the Rear Admiral in one of the cruisers, and uh, Rear Admiral Wake Walker said to Captain um, Captain Leach, "Okay, you can uh, you can break off." So that's what they did. They decided to call it a day. Prince of Wales was now down to about four of her, of her ten main guns were actually operational. The rest were malfunctioning. Should be badly hit. So she she turned around, made smoke, and disappeared, leaving Bismarck the victor.
1: You're to Dan Snow's History. We've got Angus Constamount talking about Bismarck. More after this.
0: $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoted for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com.
1: Why was the Bismarck more effective at its targeting uh, and, and bringing down fire o- onto, its, uh, onto its enemy?
2: All warships at the time had very sophisticated um, fire control equipment. The whole point was to make the shells land on the target and then if they if they didn't they could be corrected very quickly and very efficiently until they landed they straddled the target and fell on top of it bismarck had a state-of-the-art essentially um, an analog computer doing the job and her firepower was uh, very effective so too by the way was prince of wales until uh, her problem was technical malfunctions in her guns but Bismarck was very effective and her, her guns and her optics, very powerful German optical rangefinders with very good, uh, very good quality equipment, managed to find the range of the target and make sure those shelves were landing in place. So she was just a very, very well equipped, very modern ship and designed for exactly the kind of surface action she just fought. So disastrous defeat for the
1: Royal Navy, the biggest and best navy on the on the planet at that point. Well, discuss anyway. Uh, what happens? What happens next? How do they start hunting the Bismarck?
2: Well, so Bismarck had now broken out into the Atlantic. She could have done one of several things. Lutchen's could have uh, replenished from his fuel from one of a number of tankers, but the problem was he was still being shadowed by these two British cruisers, and that was essentially a pivotal thing. That and the fact that the hit from, or two of the hits from the Prince of Wales had actually damaged fuel tanks. She'd been leaking fuel. She'd lost not a not a huge amount, but enough to limit her ability to operate in the North Atlantic for as long as she wanted. So now Lutyens had to decide what to do. He pondered, he spoke to his, his um, Captain Lindemann in charge of the ship in in charge of Bismarck and he decided the best plan was rather than the return the way he'd already come was to go back and try to head for one of the French ports Saint-Nazaire or Brest and once there he could regroup patch up his ship and go to sea again in a far better way in that uh, he was better placed than he would have been having to leave from Norway so that was his plan but first of all, he had to sh- he had to lose these two British ships. Meanwhile, the cruisers were sending back these signals to Admiral Tovey. Admiral Tovey in King George V was thundering down to intercept Bismarck. He wasn't going to make it. He was in the wrong place. He'd, uh, Bismarck was too far ahead of him. His one asset, his one real asset that could intercept Bismarck was the Victorious. The aircraft carrier Victorious carried a number of swordfish torpedo bombers. These were biplanes. They were essentially obsolete, but they still carried a a torpedo. They could still just about do the job. So as Admiral Lutyens was heading south, pursued by these British cruisers, the British closed in to within range of an airstrike. And about midnight on the 24th of May, 25th of May, the aircraft set off to attack Bismarck. This was no easy feat because in a torpedo attack, these aircraft carrying a torpedo could, couldn't could do much more than 80 miles an hour. And if you can imagine being in a biplane flying towards a battleship at about 100 feet off the sea, uh, waiting for the right moment to to launch your torpedo, which is essentially as close as you can get to the enemy, then that's, um, that's not an easy task, is it? But the air attack's... They'd one possible torpedo hit was claimed. In fact, no, no real significant damage was done. So that failed. Then, at about three in the morning, Bismarck had been zigzagging. So had the British ships. And when they zigged, Admiral Luchin zagged. He basically broke away when the British weren't expecting it. They were at the limit of the radar um, coverage, and he just headed that. Uh, he headed in the opposite direction at full speed. He broke contact with the British. They lost him on radar, and that started what essentially was going to be uh, over 24 hours of utter nightmare for Admiral Tovey. He was chasing in the King George V, but now as dawn was breaking on Sunday the 25th, he he'd no idea where the Bismarck was. Bismarck just before had detached Prince Eugen. Uh, so But Bismarck was somewhere on her own in the Atlantic and she could just do anything she wanted. Uh, the British had no real way of stopping her.
1: And they worried that she might sit across those supply lanes and, and interrupt the flow of war material and food into the UK.
2: Yes, the, Admiral Tovey had to... First of all, he had to make sure that his convoys were safe. So just what the Admiralty didn't want, he had to start diverting convoys. He also called up reinforcements, such as the the old battlefield, uh, battleship Rodney was called up, which was protecting a convoy. He was gathering assets. He called up Force H from Gibraltar, which consisted of a... Vice Admiral Somerville's flagship, which was a, a, a battle cruiser, but more importantly, it had the modern aircraft carrier Ark Royal. So all these ships were starting to concentrate in the patch of the Atlantic where the Bismarck now was, except they didn't know exactly where she was. In fact, for the next day, for the whole of that Sunday, they had no real clue. And uh, until, bizarrely, they intercepted a radio message from Admiral Luchens which gave them a rough idea. And Admiral Lukchens, in any kind of modern naval warfare, you don't radio somebody and give away your position if you don't need to. And he certainly didn't need to, but that's exactly what he did. So now Tovey knew roughly where to look. And what tool did he decide to strike Bismarck with? Well, Bismarck was finally spotted on Monday the 26th uh, at 10.30 in the morning by a Catalina flying boat operating from Ireland. Um, Tovey realised he he was losing the race the Germans were going to reach the French ports his battleships, his remaining powerful battleships uh, the King George V and now the Rodney were steaming fast to, to try to keep pace with Bismarck but they were much slower Bismarck was, was very much ahead of the game nothing could intercept her apart from one thing and that was Force H so by the evening Ark Royal, which was a little to the north of Bismarck's position, had reached a position where she could launch an airstrike. She did that. She messed it up the first time. She actually attacked one of her own cruisers, the Sheffield, which was shadowing Bismarck. Uh, fortunately, no hits were inflicted on it. So the it, uh, rather um, shamefaced pilots returned, air crews returned to, to Ark Royal. But then they, uh, they finally decided to, they'd just enough time to launch one more airstrike. Fifteen swordfish took off, and this time they found Bismarck and attacked. The swordfish are attacking their target from every side, from port, from starboard, from off the bow, from off the the stern, and they're trying to fool the German anti-aircraft defences, which were very formidable. One of the advantages, I suppose, was the swordfish was so slow, so lumbering, that the Germans had problems with their very automated fire control, and anti-aircraft firing systems that they couldn't imagine aircraft could, could lumber along at 80 miles an hour and not fall out of the sky. So they were actually shooting ahead of where the British were. So they managed to make uh, several torpedo attacks and she was hit twice. One of them, the crucial one, was in her rudder and it jammed. At the time, Bismarck was was turning to port and this damage didn't seem particularly serious at the time but uh, try as it might, the crew couldn't fix this rudder and she just kept turning in lazy circles. Captain Lindemann did what he could to try to correct that by using his engines, but all Bismarck could do was steer a very erratic course. And this was the crucial hit. The Achilles heel was hit by this torpedo, this 18-inch torpedo dropped from a swordfish flowing from Ark Royal. Now Admiral Tovey could catch up with Bismarck, with his battleships, and finally bring her to battle.
1: I've been lucky enough to meet Jock Moffat before he died, uh, who told me all about that last, that, that, that swordfish attack on Bismarck and how they were flying so close to the massive waves that the salt water was coming into the cockpit. It's a truly extraordinary story. But tell me, we don't know enough about the last battle of, of, of Bismarck. So, so when the British
2: heavier ships caught up, how, how closely fought was that battle? The British ships finally appeared at a little after dawn on the 27th of May. During the night, British destroyers under Captain Vine had been attacking the Bismarck, really haranguing her, launching torpedo attacks without much success. Because it was rough seas, it was pretty poor conditions. One of them, a Polish one called the Puron, was even flashing signals at Bismarck saying we are Polish and then launching the torpedo attack so they, so the Germans knew exactly who was, who was giving them a hard time. But that had the crucial effect of the German crews had been at their guns, been at action stations all night. They were pretty much exhausted. Their ship was turning in circles. It was difficult to control. This, of course, had the effect of making that very fancy, very automated uh, fire control system pretty much ineffective because you couldn't really track enemy targets when your own ship is steering such an erratic course so at 8 45 in the morning Bismarck was sighted by Tovey's flagship the King George V and and the accompanying battleship Rodney now King George V carried 10 14-inch guns Rodney had nine 16-inch guns she was an old ship she she was built in the 20s Um, entered service in 1927 she was a really a ship designed for the first world war fighting in the second but she still had this very powerful armament so they opened fire a few minutes later at range of just under 12 miles Bismarck fires back initially her shooting's quite good but this problem of steering makes it pretty ineffectual she lands a first salvo near Rodney but that's the best it got for her um King George V has problems too. She is suffering from the same technical problems as her sister ship, the Prince of Wales. Uh, at one stage in the battle that followed, out of her ten guns, only two of them were working. So the British are plagued by technical problems. Rodney, with a slightly older, slightly complicated but effective gunnery system, works works quite well and soon... Her shells, backed up by King George V's ones when they could, start slamming into Bismarck. The first hit happened at 8.59, and that was a crucial one because it knocked out Bismarck's main fire control director. That's the one that sent all the information to their analogue computer control centre that then gave the information back to the guns and told them where to aim. So now Bismarck was essentially fighting blind, and the battle then became very one-sided that British ships zigged and zagged uh, ever closer to the German battleship, firing at it. And once the range is down to about six miles, remember, these are ships designed to fire at ranges of almost three times that. But so these shells, almost every one is smacking into Bismarck, and she's slowly turning into a into a a floating hell her upper decks are covered with flame and and explosions Um, uh, guns have been knocked out one by one her gun turrets were being knocked out Uh, crews are being stuck by hatches Uh, they can't get out of the of the of gun turrets Uh, men are dying right left and center things are going really badly wrong very rapidly so by 9.30 all her guns had been silenced and she was just a blazing floating wreck but she was still afloat all this pounding all it had done was reduce the Bismarck's ability to fight they hadn't managed to sink her but Admiral Tovey was having problems too his ships were now out of fuel he either had to break off the action with his battleships and head back to Scapa Flow or as Churchill requested uh, just get them towed in now, obviously, Churchill was no admiral. Um, last thing you want in a U-boat-infested waters is to have a, a battleship being towed by a, a cruiser or, or destroyer as a vulnerable target. So uh, Tovey made the sensible decision to break off the action. And what he did was he sent in his two cruisers that were in the area, Dorsetshire and Norfolk, and Dorsetshire fired torpedoes, which struck Bismarck. She then curved round her and fired again, Now, at the same time, the Germans had also decided the game was up and the captain, the admiral, had both been killed fairly early on. There are reports of when the fire control equipment was knocked out, so was the bridge, and with it probably Captain Lindemann and Admiral Luchens were killed. So it was the executive officer of the ship, the first lieutenant, as it were, took over and gave the orders to abandon ship and to scuttle the ship. So simultaneously, these British torpedoes were heading towards Bismarck at the same time as Bismarck's own engineers were opening up the sea valves and the seacocks and setting explosive charges to blow the bottom out of the parts of the ship and let in the water. So they were essentially scuttling their own ship and the order was put out to abandon ship and everyone really had to save themselves. At the same time, Remember, the decks were were on fire, shells were coming in, um, and it was just carnage. Bismarck finally sinks at 10.40. The argument, of course, is did the British cause it with their shells and torpedoes, or did the Germans cause it by scuttling? The sensible money is it was a bit of both.
1: How many men went down with the Bismarck?
2: The Bismarck, at the time she went down, was carrying a, a crew of a little over 2,000 so of these there were only 125 survivors so very very few uh, survivors one of the problems is of course they had to get out of the ship they had; they were covered in oil, many men were wounded, they then had to bob around uh, for some considerable time at sea until they were rescued The Dorsetshire put down nets and scrambling nets and were hoisting people on board, so did a British destroyer but the trouble was the cruiser had to break off they thought they saw a U-boat so the priority then was to save their own ship not, not the Germans a few German survivors were picked up later uh, bobbing in the water by by other vessels including a U-boat but uh, but essentially of those 2,000 odd crew who'd, who'd sailed from Gotenhaven just a few days before only a handful survived
1: and after the Bismarck's loss on its first sortie, did that af- how did that affect the, the German use of, its, of well, its dwindling surface fleet for the rest of the war? What effect did Bismarck
2: have on the rest of the war? The sinking of Bismarck had a huge effect on on German strategy. For a start, they ended that whole plan of breaking out into the Atlantic using surface ships. From now on, they'd rely on U-boats to do that, which was actually, now they had the use of the French Atlantic ports, was an easier proposition than it had been at the start of the war. So the emphasis was changing from surface ships to U-boats. By that time, Tirpitz had entered service, and the other problem was in the invasion of Russia... Altered the whole strategic situation, so now the emphasis for the British was to send convoys to Russia to the northern Russian ports, um, and the job of the home fleet then was to protect these convoys, and the job of the German surface fleet was to intercept them, so that changed the whole thing from the from the Atlantic to essentially the Arctic. the whole remaining two years essentially of German surface action until December 1943 when uh, when Scharnhorst was lost off North Cape all revolved around the Arctic convoys well that was very dramatic thank
1: you very much tell everyone what your book is called uh, it's called uh, strangely enough Hunt the Bismarck Hunt the Bismarck um, thank you very much Angus for coming on the podcast good
2: luck with us well thank you I feel we have the history on our shoulders oh, the our school history, our songs, this part of the history of our
1: country, all were gone and finished. I've just a quick message at the end of this podcast. I'm currently sheltering in a small, windswept building on a piece of rock in the Bristol Channel called Lundy. I'm here to make a podcast. I'm here enduring weather that, frankly, is apocalyptic. Because I want to get some great podcast material for you guys. In return, I've got a little tiny favor to ask. If you could go to wherever you get your podcasts, if you could give it a five-star rating, if you could share it, if you could give it a review, I really appreciate that. Then from the comfort of your own homes, you'll be doing me a massive favor. Then more people will listen to the podcast. We can do more and more ambitious things and I can spend more of my time getting pummeled. Thank you.